What's going on, bro? I appreciate you doing this. Absolutely. I I appreciate you uh, you having me on. Of course. Have fun. What's cooler, seeing yourself on your first baseball card in your first video game or seeing a bobblehead of yourself? Bobblehead was pretty cool. That was definitely unexpected. Um, I don't know if I've ever seen myself on a baseball game. I, I wasn't really into I was more in like first-person shooter stuff, so okay. I wasn't too much into baseball games. But uh, I'll tell you, that was um, when I kind of got a little bit older um, into high school. I had some friends that their their dads played in the big leagues and, and had cards. And so I thought that was really cool when they would come to school and They'd show cards around and stuff. I was like, man, you know what? I might never make it to the big leagues. But if I had a card that, you know, if I have kids one day and they have friends at school and they go, oh, your dad didn't play and you could show them, I was like, that would be pretty cool. So um, so once I got my first, even just from a rookie ball card, um, even single A minor league ball card, when I, when I got that, that kind of in my mind, I was like, okay, you know, everything else from this point on is gravy in my world. So <laughs> that's the way I looked at things. So... Um, it was all good. It was all good. So, but, but the cards, I mean, I, I still get people to this day that mail me stuff, which blows me away that they take the time to, to search out your address and send something in the mail. So, uh, I, I have not been relevant in a long, long time. So I definitely appreciate people thinking of us. So you're, you're down in Florida. I can retire from work any day now. What's the best and worst thing about living in Florida? Cause I want to move down to the sunshine state. So what's the best sure. and worst thing? Oh, uh, big open-ended question. Um, Depending on how you feel about hurricanes, they don't scare me. Just for some reason, I feel like they go around us here in the Tampa Bay area for some reason. Okay. Um, those scare a lot of people away. Uh, mosquitoes at certain points of the year are brutal. Uh, best things, beaches, uh, you know, Christmas time, we got shorts on. So <laughs> uh, not a bad way of life, to be honest with you. So uh, I love it. It's, it's a, a very, I was very fortunate places that I played in my career. Very similar weather-wise. San Diego was awesome. Um, so I like just dressing very, very casually in shorts and T-shirts and what have you. So that this fits my mold. We're going to talk about your career in baseball. But you do some intriguing stuff. You ran your first marathon at 40. I did the same exact thing. What marathon <laughs> did you run and what made you want to do it? So uh, my one of my best friends, uh, he was a former college teammate of mine, TJ Geltz. He's my financial advisor uh, to this day. Um, he was turning 40 right before I was turning 40. And he's like, dude, bucket list thing. Let's go run a marathon. Let's train for it together. What have you? And I was like, done. What are we going to do? He's like, well, I did my research and, um, the Disney marathon, Oh, nice. real flat terrain. It's in January. So you can train all through the fall season and it's nice weather. We won't kill ourselves. So I was like, okay. And I ran cross country in high school. Um, so I, I, I ran a lot in pro ball. So running didn't really bother me, but 26.2 miles is a whole different ball game. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I was like, all right, give me a couple minutes. So I got online, I signed <laughs> up, I paid for it, whatever. And then called him back. I'm like, I'm good. He's like, son of a gun. My daughters have a, a softball tournament that, that week. So I can't do it. So, you know, if you need, and I said, you know what? I said, don't care. I'm in, I'm going to do it myself. Cause I was like, at some point I'm going to, I'm going to start training and, and run this thing. And I'm going to know everything there is to know about you and vice versa for, for you uh, about me. Cause we're gonna have a lot of time to chat about stuff along the route. And uh, I, I thought it was a lot of fun. I mean, baseball is a team sport and, and yeah. running, it's very solitary. So there's a lot of times I just had my music on and I didn't run in any groups necessarily. There was a group here locally that 
when we did our long distance stuff on the weekends, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20 miles was, was the stuff that I did. Um, we'd show up at like 6 a.m. Um, um, one of the islands here locally and anybody that wanted to get together, I didn't know anybody. So I'd just show up and I would, you know, follow in a little pack and, you know, whatever they were doing that day, 12 miles, 14 miles, whatever. But, uh, it was pretty cool. It's probably one of the hardest things, um, physically I've ever done in my life. Um, after about 122 and, uh, typically historically for that, that, uh, particular marathon, typically it was like 75 degrees. Oof. Um, it was 87 that day. Oh, so like the, the sole insoles of my shoes, uh, wound up. I had to stop and like unwind those cause they got so wet. Um, yeah, about, about, and it's a chain reaction. Like knee starts bothering you and then your hip, your yeah. lower back, your neck. And <laughs> so like it hurt more to, to walk than to run at a certain point. But uh, yeah, about mile 21, 22, I was, I was dying. So, uh, but it was definitely cool to say I finished and, uh, I think I'm cut out for more of a half marathon guy from here on out. So I like the way you think. And also you're a big traveler. You traveled. What'd you do with, uh, I'm looking at now traveling for borders. What was that all about? Cause I know you travel for fun and for work or charity. What was that all about? Well, training without borders was a, a company and a buddy of mine. Um, we had, we had gone over to, uh, we had actually gone over to the middle East, um, several places, uh, Nolan and I, um, through baseball factory that I've done some stuff with over the course of my career. And, um, his whole thought was there, there's so many people that, um, are in places that don't have access to quality instruction, um, whether it's domestically in the United States or internationally. And so what if we had a company that you could not only do some stuff face to face, but in the interim, be able to do some stuff over, um, uh, uh, a platform on online and uh, keep these kids accountable and, and uh, keep them engaged throughout the year when you weren't in front of them. And so that's kind of where that came from. Um, we didn't really do a ton of stuff with training without borders. Um, I had some other stuff, you know, selling businesses and, and, you know, having kids and, and other things on my plate. But uh, I've, I've been very fortunate in my career to, to travel a little bit for baseball and, uh, People were very, very cool in different parts of the world. So, um, so I've been very fortunate. I've been very fortunate. I'm, I'm trying to get that ramped up again, like we've talked about in the past, um, here in the next probably six to twelve months. So, give me like two or three places you're dying to go to that you haven't gone to yet. You like, I hate to say bucket list, but things you really well, want. Well, you to know say. what? I, I have nothing uh, pale in comparison to your bucket list. But <laughs> um, I'll tell you, I think Italy would be really cool. Um, I've had relatives that were in the military and I asked them, they traveled very extensively, like where was their favorite place to travel? And, uh, they had said, um, Germany was really incredible. Um, I know it's not much to it, but the Maldives I think would be incredible. Um, Indonesia. I mean, there, there's, there's a bunch of places over there. Uh, my brother is a pretty, uh, wild soul. He was a, he was a, uh, an Eagle scout. And so he's, he would go stay in hostels all over the world. And so he's been to like New Zealand and Australia and, and a bunch of places over there. And um, so Fiji, I think he's been to. So there's, there's a lot of places. Let's put it that way. So what about you? I, well, you just nailed it. Uh, Australia, New Zealand, Fiji. My wife and I just did that like six months ago. Awesome. Insane. Absolutely insane. My, my list is weird. Cause I've, uh, I've done a lot of like Italy, Germany, or Indonesia, the six. Now I'm, I'm into the weirder countries now. I just did the Congo I'm uh, going to Turkmenistan. So I'm trying to do weird stuff now because I got the main, like normal ones out already. That's why. Awesome. 
And I've been very fortunate. The places I went, I mean, I got to travel a little bit for winter ball when Mm -hmm. I was in the minor leagues. And so I hit Venezuela, I hit Puerto Rico, um, college graduation gift from my grandmother. We went to Ireland for like a week. Oh, that's um, sick. Yeah. Um, for MLB alumni, uh, and my wife, before we had kids, we went to Spain for about 10 days. Um, and then with baseball here in the last probably five to seven years, uh, Hong Kong, Dubai, Qatar, Kuwait. So, um, some cool places, some cool places and really, really fantastic people along the, the line too. So that's kind of the goal is, um, you know, kind of re, uh, reestablishing some connections over there that, uh, you know, during the pandemic kind of got shut down a little bit, um, in a lot of different ways. And so just trying to reestablish some things. So, and I promise you we're going to talk baseball. I'm just so curious about your life and stuff. Oh no, all good. Absolutely. You're you're always a lean pitcher. Obviously we're both a little older now. I know you're a marathon guy now. How do you, you, are you on a different diet? What kind of eating, what's your eating schedule like? You're still a lean dude in good shape. Decent shape. Um, I, I'm at my plan weight actually still, um, but around right before pandemic, I, uh, I'm a, I'm a snacker at night. Okay. I like my ice cream. I like, uh, I like to eat later at night. And so I've had to kind of curtail that a little bit, but, um, no, I just, I try to, you know, once about nine o'clock goes, I, I shut down eating. I, I don't, um, I don't eat as big a portions as I used to as well. And during the pandemic, I think everybody's staying indoors. Um, I, I think everybody's uh, physical fitness level kind of went down a little bit. And we got kind of to a point here in our neighborhood. We had some neighbors down the block and we're like, let's go outside and we'll meet outside. And, you know, even if we catch COVID, we're outside. So we have a less chance when nobody knew what what to expect. And so we would meet each other out in our uh, in our driveways and, and do kettlebells and jump ropes <laughs> and push ups and all kinds of stuff. And. So I got back into it that way, but then uh, totally random offshoot. But uh, my my sister-in-law, when she turned like 40, she got on this uh, like 30-day cut diet. Okay. And she looked unbelievable. We saw her for a family get-together. And my wife on the way home was like, she looked really good, didn't she? And I was like, no, she looked incredible. He's like, you should try that. And I was like, are you saying I'm fat? <laughs> like just, just busting her chops. And she's like, well, she looked really good. Like you never know. And so uh, I tried it. And, uh, it was like 60 bucks. I mean, it was literally nothing and it was more food than I ever ate, but it was just clean food. Um, certain times of the the day that you ate and, uh, I dropped like 30 pounds, like within two months and it worked. So it was, it worked really well. And so I, I kind of stick to what I ate with that, um, for the most part. And my wife cooks really healthy to begin with. So, um, and I stay pretty active throughout the week. So, I, I stayed around. I, I still work out three days a week. I enjoy working out. I'm not really trying to push a lot of weight. We do, uh, my buddy and I, we do Tabata workouts. Are you mm-hmm. familiar with Tabata yeah. workouts? So, so we do over a thousand reps in 30 minutes. So we, we get after it pretty quick and you burn a lot of calories and get the heart rate going. And so that's really all I do is three days a week. I don't, I don't hardly run anymore. Do you run anymore? A little bit. I did a half marathon down in Amish town. My, uh, my wife and her cousin want to do a, the bird in hand half marathon like you run through the okay. Amish farm. So we just did that. Awesome. But thirteen's a lot, man. I, I stick to three to five if I want to get a nice run in. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think if I was going to train for something, I, I see these people that do the ultra ones, uh, 50, 100, no chance. No, no, no chance. No, 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 no. no. I, so. I, want, I want you to fill in the gaps. How do you go from pitching for the Padres to being Bert Kreischer's uh, pitching guy? How'd that come about? <laughs> that was awesome. Um, how did I get there? Well, um, 
I retired in 06, um, yeah. right from, from pro ball. I, uh, I graduated with a double major in corporate finance and economics, minor in international business. So I was like, I want to travel a little bit. I want to see the world. I want to, you know, meet new people, experience new cultures and, um, got a chance to do that. Like we had talked about previously, but, um, I set up shop in Tampa where I was born and, and, um, spent most of my life down in Bradenton about an hour from here. And, um, Bought a franchise, sold that after 14 years, an edible arrangements franchise. Um, just learned how to network when I owned that franchise. And uh, and you never knew who you were going to run into and, and how they were going to benefit you or vice versa. And so for me, um, I took a job in 2019 at one of the local high schools here, Tampa Jesuit, as a pitching coach and love it and uh, have met a lot of cool people. And uh, out of the blue, Burke Kreischer is a Jesuit grad. And, um, they had said, Hey, do you want to, you want to come in? He's going to have like a day that he's going to come out and and hit with the guys, whatever do you want to come out and, you know, experience it. So I was like, cool. So I came in and threw BP and, and, uh, you know, threw some curveballs in the mix (laughs) and, and messed around with them and stuff and great dude, great dude. And my wife got a chance to meet him and such as well. And, uh, and later on after he signed autographs and took pictures with all the team, He's like, if you guys, I said, well, we got tickets, we're going. And he's like, well, take my number, whatever. We'll have a little VIP afterwards. So we we went backstage afterwards, and there were some bucks there, and and uh, some some uh, some wrestlers, and I think Wade Boggs was back there. So just a bunch of people that are that are Tampa guys and girls, and so uh, it was a it was a pretty cool experience, and it was the first time that he had played in that big of arena. Um, in front of his home crowd so you could tell it made him pretty emotional and, and his parents were there that was I think the first time they saw him in town so it was pretty cool pretty cool so ball player father traveler coach husband author are you gonna write a book is that true I'm I'm in the process I'm, I'm editing it right now how's so. that process itself do you like it is it tedious are you a fan of it I don't know if I'd say I'm a fan of it I just uh I've had many people along the course of my life um, they said, how'd you find out you were getting to the big leagues? And, uh, one of the people we were, we were stuck in traffic. It was uh, a buddy of mine with the baseball factory. We were sitting in, in probably two hours of traffic. He's like, how'd you find out you got to the big leagues? And I kind of walked him through, uh, you know, the day I found out, um, and the emotions and what have you. And he's like, dude, like, I mean, t- his wife called mid mid conversation. He's like, I got to call you back, hung up with her. And we continue to talk. And he's like, you need to write a book. Like that's, that's a pretty cool, like how you got from point A to point B in your career and in your life and, and what route, you know, you, you could have taken and, and what have you. And so, um, so I just was, I, I talked to a couple friends and I had a couple people that they, they wanted to collaborate. It wasn't in their wheelhouse to write a book. They were not mm-hmm. authors by any means. We put some stuff on the papers and it was not great. Um, it was not going to ever sell. It would never make me pick it up in a bookstore and, and purchase it. Okay. So kind of shelved it. And then I'd run into somebody else. You know, I, I was networking a lot and, and I run into somebody else that was a ghostwriter. And so I probably have gone through three or four people that I kind of picked it up, started the process, put it down, uh, started from scratch again. And so, and, and you know, it's talking about yourself and, and sometimes like, I don't really love talking about myself to be honest with you. And I, I don't find it. Sometimes I'm like, well, why is somebody else going to find my path? Um, interesting. Um, 
but I think I, I think it's neat because I, I reached out and I had you know Dick Vitale's a buddy of mine. I asked him if he'd write a blurb uh, like for the back cover. Dante Bichette's a buddy of mine. Oh wow! Um, so a bunch of people that I reached out to, and they were more than happy to. I wanted somebody to do like the the introduction that would be somebody that was pretty respectable in the baseball world, and so I reached out to Clint Hurdle, who's a buddy of mine here locally, and um, I got a chance to uh, to know him throughout my career, and um, we met up actually just to kind of chit chat, just to see if that was something he could do for me during one of their spring training games in Bradenton when he was with Pirates still. And uh, went into his office and he got me a drink. He's like, why are you doing this? Do you need money? Like, what, what's, what's your reasoning to, to write a book? And I said, well, honestly, I was a nobody growing up. I was, I'm a nobody to this day in the grand scheme of things. I just want to show kids that, like, if you put your mind to whatever you want to do in life, you can achieve it. And part of that for me was I was a good student when I was growing up. That was something that was always impressed upon me by my parents, um, my brother and I. So the academic side can open up so many different uh, arenas for you in your life. And so I'm proof of that um, being positive um, and being able to be a reality. So um, and he's a guy that's all about the kids. So mm -hmm. he, and once he heard that, then he's like, whatever you need, let me know. So so I got that. And uh, and that's pretty good. So and that's really I mean. It's just talking about like I'm a nobody, like I'm a nobody, and I'm cool with being a nobody. But you're downplaying but I'm one of that twenty thousand people that have ever gotten to that level, and I think every little boy at some point in time when they're a kid, like goes, "Hey, I'm going to play in the big leagues, and I want to play major league baseball." And that was me at five years old. And then the older I got, I was like, you know, like I told you earlier, um, kind of, you know, you get a dose of reality and go, you know what? you're probably not getting to the big leagues because those are like such huge odds to overcome. But um, then I started to realize like, well, what if I can get a college scholarship out of it? What if I can, and I set maybe some more realistic goals at the time when I was in, you know, middle school, high school and, um, and got to college and, and played professionally and, and, and had all that stuff. And so, you know, at the end of the day, I think um, when you get to a point in your career where you're like, Hey, like you may have a little bit of a chance to to make it um, past even where you expect. Um, for me, that was an independent league up in Ohio that I played in in '94, right after I got done in college. And uh, I think you just kind of, you know, push a little bit harder, see what happens. Push a little bit harder, see what happens. And you know, and I, uh, you know, defied some people's expectations and uh, and surprised myself at times, surprised my parents at times, and so. You know, and, and sacrifice along the way, but I wouldn't have it any other way. So you downplay your achievements. You quit high school as a junior. You quit baseball as a high school junior. You still okay. go to college. You make it to the pros. One question with high school: Did you have a lot of offers when you came back to the team? I know you went to North uh, North Florida. Did you have many offers coming out, or did you want to go to North Florida? Um, well, I quit, uh, and I'm not unique in that. There were a lot of people that uh, you know deal with politics and. Mm -hmm. um, you're not in the grand scheme of things at some point in time. So um, it was affecting my grades. It was affecting my personal relationships. Um, just I wasn't playing as much as I would have hoped to. And we were not particularly good at that time frame. Um, we were more of a senior heavy team back then. But uh, I wasn't uh, getting an opportunity to play. And, you know, you go on a two-hour road trip and come back and you pinch ran in, in the seventh inning 
And, uh, and I still have two hours of homework to do that. That really didn't fly well with, with me or my parents at a certain point. So I quit, um, turned my stuff in. Um, I don't know if you want to hear this whole story, but yeah, of course, man, it's crazy. Um, I, I turned my stuff in, um, it was mid midweek, let's say like a Wednesday and the coach had called me and my family on the phone and said, Hey, I'd like to talk to you at your house and, uh, you know, kind of go over some things. So he came over that weekend and said, you know what, you know, um, uh, thinking about things in different light, you, you probably should have been playing more. So if you come back, you know, you're going to play 98% of the time if you do come back on the team. And, um, from the outside looking in, I'm sure, uh, teammates did it and go, well, you know, he quits and he gets what he wants and what have you probably wasn't the best light to, to see things in, but I came back and probably didn't play for the next two or three days, uh, of games. And so my dad was like, it's out of your hands right now. You're done. Mm-hmm. Go turn your stuff in. If we need to transfer schools, we can do something else. We will. So they were willing to to do something different to, to give me a chance at, at making my dreams come true or, or playing in the right position. And I had good grades and, you know, I was, I was somewhat athletic. I was projectable, what they call today projectable, but I was 150 pounds. I, you know, ran cross country. I, I, I was not, the prototypical pitcher that you look for. Um, so to answer your question, I did not have, I had one of the local junior colleges, Manatee Community College, which was a pretty strong program, but it was basically, I could uh, live at home and, and save room and board and, you know, go to school very, very affordably, probably for free. And mm-hmm. I just so happened when I came back. So I quit, um, took some tennis lessons, just got, got away from baseball together the rest of that s- spring season, my junior year. And then that summer we played, uh, they didn't have travel ball back then. So we played American Legion down here and our team ended up winning the state championship. And it, it kind of was a gut check for me at that point to say, Hey, if I, if I really want to play in college, if I want to play professionally, even though that's a pipe dream, I need to kind of readjust my focus now and, uh, and really get after it and be laser focused on what I need to do. So took things a little bit more seriously in that regard. And, um, we won a state championship. I played a part in, in, in our success that summer. And then that fall, I chose not to change schools or anything. I was like, if it's meant to be, I'm going to stay here. And this Oof. is where my friends are, my girlfriend and whatever. And, and I knew it was going to be the same coach. So it was, you know, it was for me to, to figure out what I was capable of doing. There was a, um, there was a place that used to be middle of the state right around Orlando called boardwalk and baseball that used to be there. And it was theme park that was baseball oriented. So it was, it was a pretty cool place. If you like baseball, it's just a little bit too close to Disney to be successful long term. And they used to have these uh, super camps that they would put on from time to time. And so and this was a senior camp, uh, probably November, December of my senior year. And the guy that was overseeing the pitchers group while we were there was a guy named Dusty Rhodes. And his kind of icebreaker to the, the pitching group was if you had a certain GPA and SAT score, he would sign you right there on the spot. And like everybody kind of laughed and then he kind of went over what the program was for the next couple of days. And I couldn't get off of the thought of, I have that GPA and that SAT, like you're going to give me a scholarship. Like you don't even know who I am. Yeah. So I found a time, you know, to, to introduce myself during that first day and uh, you know, told him like, was he serious about what he had said earlier? And he asked me what I had and he's like, well, if you have this, you know, I think I needed 10 more points on my SAT He's like, well, you have a, a, a full ride to North Florida where he was at. 
And at that point, they were three years of a program in. So it was a brand new program up in North Florida. And uh, I, I pitched well, which, which helped my cause as well at, at this event. And uh, they brought me some literature about the school. And my dad bought me the biggest how to study for the SAT <laughs> um, prep book. Um, and, and I ended up getting, I think, another 40 points. And um, we went up and, and checked it out. And, and I didn't really want to live locally. I didn't want to live at home necessarily. And so um, it checked off a lot of my boxes. Um, good business school, great coach who was, ended up being a Hall of Fame coach. I had some family that was up in Jacksonville, was close enough to mom and dad, but not too close to mom and dad. So it, it was a lot of uh, things that I wanted in a college. And, uh, and so I ended up going there. So He was a legendary coach, Hall of Famer. How did he change you going from, you know, high school is not the greatest coaches and I'm not knocking your guys, sure. local guys to a legendary coach. How much did he change you? Did you notice a difference? Like, oh, crap, I'm learning different techniques. Different. He he was other than my dad. He was probably the biggest influence on my career. Wow. Because his whole thought process was he he can't compete with the Floridas and the Florida States Mm -hmm. and the Miamis to get top talent. So he would recruit smart guys and he would teach them the game. And his his whole goal was. I'm going to teach you the way because his offseason job, he would be a minor league coach in the Brewers organization at the time. And so he's like, for the few of you that are lucky enough to play at the next level after college, I'm going to run my program like a minor league program. So it'll be a very easy transition for you once you get a chance, if you get a chance to do that. And so um, defensively, how he taught um, offensive mindset, you know, how to steal signs, how to dress. I mean, your, your hair, um, what you wore on road trips, like everything was, was how it was primarily in the minor league. So when I got to, uh, the minor leagues or even the independent league for that matter, it was very easy transition for me. And, you know, you know, getting up early for weights or, you know, studying or, you know, having your priorities right and your time management skills. He, he was somebody that was, you either were going to sink or swim doing it his way. He was a very old school guy. And I, I was an old school thought process kind of guy as well. So, so I meshed well with him. So your career ends in North Florida, you don't get drafted, obviously disappointed. How'd the frontier league happen? You know, usually it's a minor league contract. How'd that happen? what made you take faith? Cause they were only around for a couple of years. So, um, great question. Um, so he, uh, I called my, my college coach, I called Dusty towards the end of my career. I had a very average, um, maybe even a little below average senior year. I was the technically the ace on that team, but, uh, we, that was our first year that we were NAIA for my first three years. And my senior year, we had jumped up division two against some really tough competition in the sunshine state conference. And, um, I called him just to see if he had gotten any calls or if he thought I had a chance of getting drafted and uh, I knew it'd be a late senior sign kind of situation. If so. And he said, I hadn't heard anything yet, but um, he had had some calls about a league up in Ohio. Um, two of my teammates were going to head up there for a tryout. It was in the next couple of weeks actually. So it wouldn't hurt my cause if I went up there and what have you, and he could give me the details if I wanted them. So I hung up the phone. My mom was in the, um, in the room with me. And she said, well, what did he say? And I kind of filled her in and she's like, what do you think? And I said, I feel like if it's meant to be like, I'll get drafted and what have you. And she's like, well, what if you don't, do you want to, you know, extend your career and you don't know if you don't try. And so, um, so we rented a car actually, I didn't want to put the the miles on my car. So I rented a car (laughs) with my brother and we just made a little road trip 
I drove like 18, 19 hours up to Ohio in um, the middle of God's country. I'd never been up there. And, um, and we just listened to a lot of music and chatted up there. And uh, I hadn't thrown for probably like two or three weeks after the end of the season and went up and uh, met up with my two teammates the night before. And uh, the tryout was basically infield, outfield, batting practice. And then at the end, the pitchers would throw some bullpens. And my two buddies like had the best, the best tryouts. Uh, <laughs> made every defensive play, laying out, raked the ball all over the park. And I was like, man, both of those guys are definitely making it, no matter what. Um, and uh, I threw my bullpen. I felt like it was okay. It wasn't the best, but but you know it was good enough. And the, uh, the head coach came up to me afterwards and said, look, you know, nobody has a curveball like yours that I've seen in this league. Would love to sign you. Um, need to be back in a week. And I was like, okay, well, what about my buddies? And he's like, unfortunately, he's like, I loved them both. They had great, great uh, tryouts, but we have returning all-stars at both their positions. So unfortunately, no. they're probably not going to break camp with us, unfortunately. So, um, yeah, so little unlucky on that part. So we drove back, I grabbed my stuff and, uh, and headed back with my car and my belongings and, uh, and told them from the outset, like, I'm here to get out of here. Um, meaning I, you know, I was here for the exposure and whatever, and I wanted to, you know, move on to like real baseball. And, and that's exactly what they wanted to just because that allowed them to get more exposure. And so everybody was on the same page and, uh, and I had great experience there. I mean, uh, I wasn't there for the money. I was just talking to somebody earlier today. I mean, I was making $500 pre-tax a month. And, um, you know, I, I was there for, you know, to work on my perceived deficiencies as a pitcher that I didn't really do a good job at showcasing as a, a senior at North Florida and uh, was able to do that. So Now, how does the call with the Brewers happen? Like, do they call the league? They, hey, we want this guy. How does that happen? Because it's kind of like getting recruited again. Yeah, um, it, I went to an event that um, that that they had kind of like an open uh, showcase uh, that fall and, and threw well, and they had expressed some interest. And I typically it was a buyout where if they liked you, um, they would basically buy your contract out. Um, and I had reached out. I, I I think I was most valuable pitcher that year uh, in Chillicothe, and it had fully intended on returning. If, uh, if that's the way it, it ended up going. And I called the owner and I called the, the manager who was his father, his, his, uh, the owner of the team. His father was the manager and, uh, and just got them on the phone. I said, Hey, this is an opportunity. And they said, we'll let you out of your contract. I mean, you, you were, you know, just remember us down the road and, you know, and if something happens and if you want to come back, you know, we would love to have you back. And so that's kind of how we left it. And, um, I was off to the races. So, you played in Vegas, Portland, uh, El Paso, all these Beloit, different places. Yeah, Beloit, yeah, Mobile, yeah. Alabama. What is the weirdest or silliest minor league uh, promotion you ever saw playing? Because some, you know, some of them have wacky ones. Do you any uh, any stick out? Um, I, I thought one of the ones that was really cool was uh, El Paso. If you had like the game winning hit uh, or something along those lines, they used to pass. A hat around the stadium and, and collect money for you. And some of these guys, you know, if it was like a Fourth of July fireworks night yeah, or something, yeah, yeah. they could walk out of there with a couple grand at the end of the day. So uh, I thought that one was pretty cool. It never really happened for pitchers. It was always yeah. <laughs> for a hitter in that situation. But um, that was a big one. Um, 
you know, and you had the San Diego chicken, you had the, you know, Myron Noodleman guy that looked like Jerry Lewis that would come through. Um, they had some fun ones along the way, but, uh, you know, you got to see the same ones over and over and over. So, uh, but it, it always, uh, you know, it, it was mostly for the kids and, and, you know, that's, you know, signing autographs and, and, um, interacting with the youth. I mean, cause you remember that you were in that position one, one time when you were young and, uh, you looked up to those kind of people. So you always, you know, took that with a sense of pride. So you played in the minors with John Jaha, Belliard, Jim Lairitz, who just came on, uh, Finley, Sean Burroughs, any guys really stick out either on your team or on another team? Like, okay, this dude is different. Well, you mentioned Belly. Belly was my second baseman my first year in Beloit, and he you could tell he was different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he could swing it. He could pick it. He had no um, shortage of uh, of uh, swagger back yeah. then. <laughs> so he, he was a very confident individual and uh, – just a great teammate. So off of that first year in Beloit, which Beloit was their uh, minor league, their low A minor league affiliate at the time, we won the league my first year there in '95, and that was the only time they ever won. Um, but on that team, there was a guy named Jeff D'Amico, who was their top pitching prospect. He was the number one guy on our our roster. Um, Belly. We had a couple other pitchers that were solid. Steve Woodard. Um, there's a guy named Greg Mullins. We had probably like five or six guys off of that team that ended up getting to the big league. So it was, wow. it was kind of neat because you don't typically see at a low level that much talent um, amassed on one team. So, um, and it was a good group of guys as well. So um, along the way, yeah. I mean, there was a guy named uh, Todd Dunn that I went to, to college with that was a first round pick for the Brewers. He, uh, he had uh, some physical injuries uh, along the line, but he could have been like, as good as anybody that you've ever seen. Um, Burroughs, Burroughs, I think growing around, growing up around the clubhouse, like you could tell, like he had such great baseball IQ. He was just such a goofball and he would get hurt <laughs> doing the silliest things. I felt like, um, he was very similar to the Tony Gwynn mold. Like he was a, a slasher hitter, great eye, wasn't ever going to hit for a ton of power, but, um, he was going to hit over 300 every year, play good defense, play hard, um, played with a guy named Ben Davis. That was a catcher from uh, from Pennsylvania. That was like the number two or number three pick in the draft. Um, he was amazing. Um, I was very fortunate to play with a lot of a lot of good players um, along the line. And and I tell this to players that I work with currently. Um, I was never the best player on any team I ever played on, and I'm totally fine with saying that. I was one of the better players, but I was never the clear cut better player. So that always made me want to work harder and, and be the best player I could be. So, um, cause you see some guys and you're like, how did that guy never make it? Yeah. And I did. And, and one of the things that Dusty used to always impress upon the team was never leave this game with, with regret on in your mind, just because it, that's going to weigh on you for the rest of your life. You're going to go, you know, coach your kid in little league and you're going to think about what if I had done some things a little differently and what have you. And that, that really hit home for me. Um, because forever is a long time, and and I was like, and I love the game, and that would really, really bum me out, and I would feel like I let down people important in my life if I didn't do the best I could. If I, if I wasn't good enough, and you could walk away with clear conscience and go, hey, I took it as far as I could, we're done, so be it. But um, so I was, you know, I, I stayed healthy for the most part, and and I put up numbers, and I continued to work and try to. Um, a long time ago, 
during my rookie year, actually, my dad and I were sitting in the off season, um, eating dinner or something. And he said, um, can I tell you something and not hurt your feelings? And, you know, I just finished a rookie season in the big leagues. Like there was nothing that was yeah. hurt my feelings quite honestly. And I said, shoot, what do you got? And he said, uh, I didn't think you were good enough to play professionally. He's like, I loved you much as, as I could love anybody. I hoped for your sake that you had a chance to play at the next level. But he's like, but I, you know, looking at guys on, in, on TV and, you know, in the big leagues, I didn't know if you were that wow. good. And you went to Chillicothe and you showed that you had the ability to make some adjustments in your game. And then you went to, you know, affiliated baseball. And, you know, I was a very average numbers um, that first year in Beloit all the way up through right before the draft. So it was like late May, early June and, and was like, I don't know, three and four or something like that. And ended up winning 10 straight um, and, and ended up, you know, 15 and four in that, that season and, and was um, tied with D'Amico for the, the most wins in the, uh, in the organization. And so I never looked at it in those terms, but when my dad said it, like I always found a way to be successful at the next level. And if I got a little challenge or, something that, you know, would throw me a curveball, so to speak, then I would figure out how to, to be better and, and succeed and overcome those things. And one of my buddies said a long time ago, like, you're going to, you run out of rings on the ladder. Like they're going to challenge you and go, well, he's not going to be able to get past double A. Like, let's, let's throw him in there. He's going to get, you know, his, his lunch eaten and then, you know, he'll re get released or get traded or whatever. And I, I constantly, I guess, figured some things out along the way and it and, and stuck to my strengths. I think that's, a lot of people try to be somebody else at a certain point. And, and I was always, a, I never looked at myself as a power pitcher or anything. I was a command guy when I was in high school and college and what have you. And then I got, you know, to understand the weight room and, and mechanical efficiency as I got older. And, and I think that, uh, you know, all those things, you know, being able to throw a little bit harder as I, as I went on in my career and getting a little bit bigger and stronger and, um, you know, adding to my, my pitch repertoire, I think all those things kind of helped make me a better player. And, and had some spurts of uh, some um, longer success um, certain times in my career. And, you know, was very fortunate. was in the right place at the right time. So I had a bunch of players who have, who came on and they've been traded before traded as a minor league guy. Is that a good thing? Like, Oh wow. A team wants me. Or is it like, Oh crap, they don't want me. Is it, is it a, a tough thing to juggle? I'm always curious. Like I had, I just had a few guys <laughs> on. I just had Matt Laporta on. He's like, I was traded for CC. He's like, at one point I'm like, wow, I'm getting traded, but for CC. So when you got traded, how'd you deal with that? Um, I, um, I was my first two years. I went from a ball in Beloit, low mm -hmm. a, I skipped high a and went to, uh, to double a in El Paso with D'Amico with Belliard. There was like three or four of us that skipped high a and took my lumps a little bit, but had a decent season and then got in the weight room a little bit more. I got on a strength conditioning routine that off season. So I came back feeling bigger, stronger, um, got to spring training was, was training with the triple a team at that time. And it was super early. It was maybe like the first couple of weeks of, of spring training arm felt good, everything. And somebody called me and they're like, Hey, so-and-so wants to see you It's Cecil Cooper. Um, who was like director of minor league operations or whatever that he wanted to talk to me. And so I went into his office and, uh, he said, Hey, uh, not sure if you guys were going to if you were going to have the opportunity to make the triple a team this year, we were pretty um, heavy with, with some veteran guys, some guys that were kind of up and down. So he's like, 
we didn't really know if you were going to make triple a jump this year so we had a, a trade come across our desk and we pulled the trigger on it so and i was like well who left and he's like the padres and i was like well who did i get traded for and i'm in double a working out with triple a and i said well who did i get traded for and it was a single a third baseman so i was like and at the time milwaukee was not that stellar at the oh. big league level so like i went he's like you know so here's the information i was fortunately only just going across town in Arizona for spring training for the Padres. So it wasn't like I had to ship all my stuff to Florida or anything along those lines. So I went to my uh, hotel and uh, I was like, man, I suck. Like if I can't, like I'm getting traded for a single A guy. uh, Like maybe this is not meant to be like, maybe I should pack it in or whatever. And I, we actually had dinner, the guy and me that that we were getting traded for. So we had dinner (laughs) and, uh, we sat down and he's like, well, what's this like? And I kind of filled him in and I was like, what's it like there? And he's like, dude, you are going to love it there. Like it's, it's first rate, like it, just the way they do things. It's, it's totally different from what you're explaining that the Milwaukee does. And I think he ended up playing one more year and shut it down minor league wise. Um, they just did, they did, did things a little bit differently. They, they weren't really um, the structure of you had to have your hair a certain way or your mm-hmm. clothes a certain way. Like they really didn't, push that too much if you could play with you um it used to be where for milwaukee like you had all the minor league guys in one place and then a couple miles away was the big league guys so you unless they came down to get a couple reps um they didn't want to travel that day and they wanted to get a couple reps in the minor league camp you never saw pro guy or big league guys um san diego the clubhouse for the minor leagues was here the big leagues was here. So everybody ate in the same cafeteria. And I was like, this is kind of different. Why do you do it this way? And they're like, we want the minor league guys to see how the big league guys go about their business. So you think you can play in the big leagues? Well, watch how they are you doing what they're doing. And then the flip side is the big league guys, you want to stay in the big leagues and you don't want to lose a job to one of those guys. You need to continue to do what you're doing. And so I thought it was pretty cool reasoning for that. Um, but like the first day I walk in there and like Tony Gwynn's there and um, Ken Caminiti and, and I was like, should I not sit like, at this <laughs> table or whatever? And they're like, no, you can sit wherever you want. So it was, uh, it was, it was a, a neat experience. It was definitely a neat experience. So um, I felt like it gave me kind of a second chance. And uh, I went from Cecil Cooper. Uh, when I went over there, I got to meet Dave Stewart from the old days and mm-hmm. uh, he was the guy that wanted me in that trade. And I got a chance to have a, a, a little bit more drawn out conversation with him during that spring training. And he's like, you're throwing harder than when we scouted you last year. What have you been doing? This is better than last year. What have you been doing? So they, he basically told me the first day I met him within 30 minutes of talking to him that he thought I was going to pitch in the big leagues for him in, in, in pretty short order. And so for me, like knowing who he was, cause I was a baseball guy, um, with the historical side of baseball and, um, to hear that out of his mouth, brand new to the organization. Like I was like, man, if I thought I worked hard back then, like now, like it's on. So, um, it was just a different, different experience. And, uh, everybody was, was good people in that organization. They had a lot of talent, um, both at the big league level and the minor league level for San Diego. So it was, it was a good place for me to be at that point in my career. Now, my favorite thing is call-up stories, draft day stories. Take me to June of 2000. How does that call happen? Do they pull you in? Like, you're getting called up to the show. Your whole sure. life is about – how did the call happen? I love these stories. 
um, I was in AAA um, that year. I was about as dialed in. They talk about being in the zone. I was about as dialed in as I've ever been in my career. And I think I was like second in the Pacific Coast League in pitching at that time. And um, that was 2000. So I had played five years. I was like, I'm not going to. The year before that in 99, I had hurt my elbow and uh, had to rehab back for the majority of the year. So I was like, it's maybe it's not in the cards for these guys for me to get to the big leagues. I, I you know, pitch in some some big league spring training games um, just as kind of like an emergency guy or whatever. But I was like, I'd never been uh, invited to camp or anything like that as a non-roster invite. So I was like, you know what? Let me just finish good this year. Let me have a strong season. I'll get a big league invite with somebody else next year. Forget these guys. I don't care about them anymore. And so let me just, just, you know, really focus on what I need to do and and prepare for next year. And I was, I was pretty dialed in that year. Um, we had a good team in AAA in Vegas. And uh, I used to like to go to the ballpark early, just get my running done, get my shoulder stuff done. And then I could just relax the rest of the day until I needed to chart or whatever I needed to do that day. And so we were in Tucson, actually. And it was on Father's Day uh, of all days. And I'd already called my dad from one of the pay phones at the hotel before I left uh, for the ballpark and such and wished him a happy Father's Day and went to the ballpark, got dressed, um, was going to go do my run. And uh, our pitching coach at the time, Daryl Ackerfeld, had uh, swung by and he said, hey, when you get dressed, come in the office real quick. I had a question about the, the uh, chart from last night. You know, I just, you know, wasn't out of the ordinary for him to say something like that. Like, was that really a slider? Was it a curveball? Or, or, you know, was that pitch away? Or, or, you know, did you miss a pitch or whatever? So I got dressed. Uh, my roommate at the time had come over, had some shoulder issues during the time frame. So he was getting some treatment done at the field. And uh, I went into the the, uh, the locker room and uh, somebody closed the door behind me. And the, the manager's in there. The pitching coach is in there. The trainer's in there. And it felt like when I got traded, that's, that's like oh, how I okay. put my heart racing or whatever. And I was like, not all these people need to be in here to talk about a chart from last night is what I thought. And, uh, they're like, sit down. And I sat down and they said, I have a deal for you. Um, I know it's not your, your time to chart tonight, but if you chart for us tonight, and this was on a Sunday, you can pitch in the big leagues on Tuesday. And I was like, like, I was like, say that again, and, you know, kind of went through it in my mind. And, and there were plenty of times when you were in the minor leagues where somebody had, you know, was a 40 man guy on your team. Mm -hmm. And they're like, you know, stay by the phone. We're going to call you tonight or whatever. And they didn't get a call. And so big blow to the ego, big blow to like, hey, is this really going to happen for me or whatever? And sometimes those guys never got a chance. And so I just want to make sure that this was a done deal. And um, there was a guy named Rodrigo Lopez that was getting sent down who had struggled a little bit. I was going to get called up. And then uh, this guy named Woody Williams that he uh, was on the DL. I think he had about two and a half more weeks that he was going to rehab, get a couple more rehab starts in, and then he was going to join the big league club. So I was going to get three starts, and then I was going to get sent down uh, to AAA again and maybe get a September call-up or whatever. So – like I am like vibrating in this room and I was like, yes, that that's perfect. Thank you. Whatever. And, and, uh, so I walk out the door and, and everybody, you know, a ball, double a, triple a, everybody's shooting to try to get to the big league. So yeah. I didn't, I didn't want to go out there and yell or whatever. And so I went out and just tried to keep my composure and my, my roomie was still getting dressed. He's like, what they want. I was like, 
you know, I tried to like, like say nothing or whatever. He's like, <laughs> and I was like, nothing. He's like, what the hell did they want? And I was like, I'm going up to the big leagues. And so he, he starts yelling and is all crazy. And I was like, I got it. And there's a, there's a handful of people there, maybe four or five people on our team so far. They went early. So I had to get out of there just to blow off some excess energy. And so I went and, and ran about as, as long as I could. Well, first I went up, up to the, uh, the pay phones and I wanted to call Dusty. I wanted to call my agent and I wanted to call my parents. Oh. Parents I called. It was busy. No. <laughs> I'm busy. Uh, I got through to Dusty. I got through to my agent. And then I just I went and ran for as, as long as I could, as hard as I could. And uh, finally got on the phone with my uh, And while I was up on the on the concourse at the payphones, guy walks by. He was Beloit's um, play by play announcer my first year of the bit uh, of uh, a ball in Beloit and um he happened to be their triple A play by play announcer in Tucson. So just such a small world and um so I got a chance to kind of fill him in on stuff and tell him I was pitching against the Diamondbacks, which two hour drive from Tucson um in two days. And so he was obviously very happy for me and, and my dad, you know, being able to get him on the phone and he's like, Well you already called me what what what's the deal? And I said, Well I got some more information you know, a little bit ago and fill him in. And obviously, you know, I just talking about it now, like if my kids at some point called oh me, God. that's like chills. I, I don't know what I would do. I mean, and, and, and he broke down a little bit emotionally and, uh, and um, so it was, it was a, a really cool experience to, to, you know, have him as, 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 you know, far back as I could remember being that person that, that threw with me on the sidewalk by our house and, coached my teams and, and did everything they could to further my career and be able to share that on a, a day like Father's Day was pretty special. So Now, I know you kind of ruined my little spoiler question, but you saw Gwyn and you saw um other guy, Ken Cavanetti. When you go yeah. in the locker room now, you're a pro. You go around to Ricky Henderson, Trevor Hoffman, Tony Gwynn, hi, I'm Brian. Like, how do you introduce yourself walking into that locker room? Well, it's funny. So so my, my, uh, my roomie that was getting treatment was a guy named Huck Flenner. And uh, he had gotten a cup of coffee with the uh, Blue Jays before he had signed with the, the Padres organization. So we went out that night just to celebrate. And he's like, I'm going to give you my two cents. You know, take it for what it is, whatever. So I was all ears. Obviously, I'd never been up there. And I'm going to be up there for three starts. And then I'm coming back and rooming with him. And so he goes, speak when spoken to. They don't care about your opinions. Like, you're a nobody. You're about as low on the totem pole as you can be. Um, so speak when spoken to, um, don't interject what you think with what they're talking about. Um, he's like, it's tough to get there. Trust me, it's tough to get there, but it's even tougher to stay there. So little nuggets. And so I, I I took that for what it was worth. And so when I got in there the first, uh, so the next morning, like I'm still buzzing that night, we, we do our game win or lose. I don't remember that next morning. Um, uh, my trainer and I think our clubby drive me the two hours to from like our Red Roof Inn or wherever we were staying to um, the Ritz Carlton in Tucson or in, in Phoenix from Tucson. And I'm like, like, I'm not in the same city anymore. And so um, I walked in there, signed the paperwork with the assistant GM, uh, meet some people, go over to the park a little bit earlier. I'm pitching the next day. So I get to chart that night and it was uh, one of our pitchers versus Randy Johnson, the first game. 
So I'm charting at their place. And it, like, uh, all I can think about is like little quotes from like Bull Durham, like the balls are whiter and it's like a cathedral and it, it's, you know, I'll, I'll walk in the clubhouse and, you know, your, your Jersey sitting there with Tolberg and 55. And one of my buddies was number 56 at the time, uh, a guy named Kevin Walker that was, uh, on my team in double A and uh, knew him from spring training. And so he's there and he congratulates me and we get dressed and I go throw with him. But I tried to just stick to my routine like I had all through my minor league career. So I'd go do my, you know, my bands and my, my light dumbbells and my running and whatever. So I just had my blinders on and I just kind of went around and did my thing. And if somebody asked me something, I would answer him. But um, I went to the training room and was in the corner, like just doing my, 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 uh, my light dumbbell routine. And um, Trevor was in there with um, the, the head trainer at the time. And he starts loud talking like, Hey, if you were on a new team, would you, um, would you introduce yourself to your new teammates or would you um, stay to yourself or whatever? And I was like, guys, I was told to do this. And like <laughs> I had to say or whatever. And so they, they started laughing, came over, and we talked a little bit. And Trevor ended up being my throwing partner while I was in San Diego because he threw so much and liked the long toss and liked to run. And I was like, man, I'm only going to be here for three weeks or two weeks. I was like, you'd be a perfect person for me to learn from. So so I um, I ended up wanting to throw with him. And um, it was just, you know, again, I, I just tried to, I tried to treat it like just another minor league start. I tried to treat it like, you know, nothing was different. It was just a different lineup that I was facing. And, uh, you know, I remember the day I was pitching, it was pretty cool to obviously, you know, chart when Randy Johnson's there and I'm like, man, I got that guy's rookie card. I got this. <laughs> and they're in first place at the time. They win the world series the next year. Um, you know, one against the the Yankees and, um, just like seeing all these people that are on the field or whatever, it was just kind of surreal. And then we're stretching the day, the next day, the day I'm pitching, we're stretching as a group behind the, uh, behind the turtle while um, the Diamondbacks are, are taking BP and there's stuff flashing on the, uh, on the jumbotron out there. And it says, you know, making his major league debut or whatever. And Trevor was literally like stretching out right here and he's like stretching and he's like watching. And he goes, did your debut tonight? Good luck. And then just kept on, you know, stretching like it was no big thing or whatever. And so, uh, you know, I just tried to treat it like, just another game. And, you know, my brother was coming into town. He's flying in from Boston. My parents were flying in from Florida. I was like, I just don't want to embarrass myself. I mean, this is what you dream about. You know, I got three of them. So, you know, make them all count and, um, you know, see what happens. And I was very fortunate. I threw a one hitter for seven innings that first game and was player of the game. And um, that was a 12 day road trip, I believe, when I got called up. So we went to Arizona, Cincinnati, LA during that trip. And so I threw one of the games in, in Arizona and won that game. And then I threw in uh, Cincinnati on getaway day there at their old stadium and was just so, so just such a neat way that everything lined up because Chillicothe was like a couple hours away from there. So I got a chance to get on the horn and say, how many tickets do you need? And, and this is this, and this is that. So they got a chance to come and, uh, face, you know, some Hall of Famers in that lineup. Griffey, Casey, and uh, Barry Larkin. Barry Larkin, I struck both of those guys yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, And Griffey and, and Casey, actually. Um, so, and I took a shutout into the eighth that game. And, and you know, I didn't think I threw that well, but um, they were obviously happy with it. And so, just everything, everything working the way it did. And uh, I ended up winning NL Player of the Week that first week in the big leagues. And just... 
just to experience with a lot of people that had met so much in my career in the past, just to be able to like include them in those memories was, was really cool for me. So, um, you know, I, I wouldn't change how I got to where I got to for the world. And, um, you know, just, just a lot of good memories along the way. So any rookie hazing, picking up bills or doing something silly, any rookie hazing, you thought three starts, you were up there for a while. Any hazing? Oh yeah. Well, well I was supposed to be up there for, so we went to, uh, we'll talk about the hazing cause that's definitely a funny one, but, um, I was only supposed to be up there for three starts. The day before I started the the game against uh, Randy Johnson, our guy that was pitching, Stan Spencer, hurt his elbow, and he ended up being out the rest of the year. So I just slotted into his spot when Woody came back up, and I was up there for the next two and a half years. So worked out. I mean, it didn't hurt that I threw well for my mm-hmm. first. I was like, hey, I, I need to go pay my rent in Vegas. And um, when I got to L.A., I was asking – one of the one of the front office people and they're like you can go ahead and move out during um during all-star break we'll fly you back and then you can grab all your stuff and just come back and you'll stay with us so like from that point on i was like man this is like couldn't couldn't ask for anything better but uh so the hazing um couple things like everybody had their their jobs that they had to do so for me um like one guy, Trevor was a big music guy, so he had a big boom box for the 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 plane. So one person would be in charge of his big book of uh, CDs. One person would be in charge of the boom box. So my job was to make sure when we got on a, a bus to go to the airport to make sure that there was enough beer on that bus. So I don't drink beer. So I would leave a clubhouse on getaway day and I have like two bag, two trash bags full of beer over my, you know, in a suit walking to the bus, looking like a raging alcoholic. And, uh, you know, my dad's like, well, what's in that? And I'm like, beer. He's like, why do you, I was like, don't ask. Like it's, it's nothing. So, you know, it could have been worse. I see the guys that, that have, you know, the, 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 um, the little kids backpacks with like the gum and the candy or whatever bullpen so and you know in everything being equal it wasn't that bad um during that rookie year later on in the season we were in at wrigley field and it was getaway day and they took all our um stuff out of our lockers our clothes and such our suits and i had a dress uh, with with pearls i believe and so everybody had dresses that that were not the right size either so we had to try to squeeze into a dress um walk through the huge crowd that was uh, down uh, in the middle of the street to get to our bus, to get to our uh, plane. And I'm like, well, that was it. Well, we had to go from when we landed in San Diego from Chicago, we had to go back to our stadium Well, we shared it with the, the Chargers. So they're playing when we get there. So there's thousands of people there, too, that we have to walk through oh, with our clubhouse to try to change. So uh but you know what? At the end of the day, it's okay. I, I, I wish they they would do that kind of stuff even more so. I think I think guys now don't really go through that, and they don't you know understand like the pecking order a little bit. I mean, it's all about like who has the most signing bonus or or things like that. And I, I think it just it makes you humbled a little bit. So I didn't mind it whatsoever. You faced uh, McGuire, Piazza, Vlad, A Rod. You can just ever Larry Walker, Sosa, Hall of Famers. Yeah, Be- best play to ever go yard off you. Ooh, uh, Walker was uh, like 
this is my little game room guy room here. And I got a bunch of bats that are signed on the wall. And, uh, he was one of my favorite to watch was, uh, Larry Walker. Larry Walker was, uh, just such a complete player and just played with, you know, just played like he was a little kid in a grown man's body, but just did everything so effortlessly. So that was a really, and NLS back then, you know, bonds and Helton and Walker, <laughs> Like there were there were no easy outs anytime we played any of those teams, but uh, Vlad probably hit the furthest ball off me that I can remember. He went second tank at home on a hanging curveball. Um, so I, I gave up I gave up my share. Um, I was a control guy, so I gave up my share of home runs. So that really didn't bother me too much. But uh, there was a lot of good hitters back then. So let me ask you: You knew at the time you were playing, you played with Hall of Famers. Mm-hmm. Now the jersey swap is cool after a game. It can be a playoff game. People are swapping jerseys, which you know yeah. drives like I'm the biggest Yankee fan in the world. When I see you know guys la- Chapman laughing, it, it kills me. It drives, like I'm a, like I'm a five year old. I throw temper tantrums. Did you ever ask another player for an autograph? Or how about guys on your team? You know you're playing with Tony Gwynn or Ricky Henderson Hoffman. Do you go like, hey, can I get a jersey? Is it is it a weird spot for you to do that? I never asked for like game use stuff like that. I, um, what I would do is cause I was a, a guy that collected baseball cards or, or sign balls or things of that nature. And I'm like, man, I'm, I'm right here. And I asked some of our clubbies at the time, I was like, how does that work? Like if I want a ball sign, he's like, just, I'll bring the ball over. You tell me who you want signed and I'll bring it over. I was like, what if like a bat or a Jersey or something like that? He's like, you get the Jersey, just call somebody in the front office. Uh, uh, we have connections and they have to order it. And then, you know, you'd pay them directly. And it was like 120 bucks, like, like lettered everything. So it was super cheap back then for like the nice majestic ones. So, um, and I asked one of my buddies who was a rookie during the same time frame. I said, uh, do you ask for anything? He's like, I'll get it next year. And I'm thinking to myself, there's no guarantee you're going to be here next year. So like, like if I'm only here for three starts, I'm getting anything I can get. So like, for me, I would get, you know, I would ask some people for some bats. Um, my dad was like, you're playing for three Hall of, with three Hall of Famers on one team, Henderson, Tony, and and um, and um, Trevor. So I got a ball signed with all three of them on there. Oh, nice. Uh, got a ball signed by um, anybody that was big in the National League back then, like Bonds, Sosa. Um, we played – you know, Jeter, Mariano Rivera, when we went interleague, um, I got bat signed by Klesko, by um, anybody. Maddox was my guy pitching wise. So I got a bunch of stuff signed by him, like jerseys. Um, Larry Walker signed some bats and, and uh, a jersey for me. So I, I, I was like, you know what? You, you never know when you're going to get this opportunity again. So you might as well take advantage of it. And so I, I got a lot of that stuff still. Um, and I'm glad I did. I mean, and and I love you know I, I don't just love baseball like I got uh, I got a uh, I bought it in an auction but I got like a, a boxing glove that was signed by Mike Tyson I got like a basketball signed by Dick Vitale like I, I just collect random stuff that I thought was cool so let me ask you one more question about baseball because I, I love the memorabilia talk you had Tommy John surgery did you know your arm was hurting you did you push yourself a little more like because how do you deal with that mentally because I always feel that pitchers more than anybody mentally, especially in the minor leagues, if you have a bad start four days now, you're like, oh my God, are they cutting me? What's going on next? And like you said, you weren't a bonus baby. Now, Tommy John, are you like just pushing yourself or did it come out of nowhere? Well, 99, when I first got hurt and I missed most of that year, um, it felt like I put my elbow in a campfire 
in the first inning, I, I heard it on a curveball, just, you know, tried to rip it a little bit further back than I should have. And I thought it was maybe a muscle spasm or something. I knew it was definitely something different than normal soreness. And, but I didn't want to say anything. I wanted to try to help the team win the game. So I went, you know, in between innings, I'm doing wrist curls and anything I can to try to stretch that out. It doesn't get any better and it gets progressively sore and sore as the game goes. By the fifth inning, like I'm throwing 72 miles an hour up there and and the catcher comes out to me and goes, are you okay? I was like, this is my last inning. I should have taken myself out earlier, but um, I went to our team doctor and uh, I went out to a guy that was out in LA at the time that was a, a pretty well-known guy. Just check my MRI and they're like, you got partial tear. I don't think it's bad enough for you to have surgery, but you're going to do some rehab or whatever. So that year was a pretty tough year for me. Not that I thought that that I would get uh, released necessarily because I can't release when you're hurt, but um, to see all the guys that kind of leapfrogged over you to get an opportunity in the big leagues at the time because we were not great in 99. That was kind of a rebuilding year. They, they went to the World Series against the Yankees in 98 and then kind of shipped everybody out. And so there were a lot of guys getting, you know, uh, an opportunity in 99. And I was like, this might be the only chance I get. And, you know, that will really, really burn me a little bit if that's the case. But, you you, you know, you can't control that. And so all I did is focus on my rehab and trying to get as strong as I could. And, um, and you know, was very fortunate. But uh, it's it's tough. Um I think I, I, I felt really good and was throwing the hardest that I've ever thrown in 2000 after that year of, of rehab and get stronger. And a one was uh, a good year. I, I, uh, in the big leagues, I, I had reached out for Sean Casey actually reached out for a comebacker in Cincinnati and, um, tried to knock it down with my bare hand and fractured the tip of my middle finger and missed like two and a half months. And as you know, like that's the last finger that that, ball comes off of so that kind of hurt so I would kind of cut some things off a little bit earlier than I needed to and really didn't get the extension and uh so that kind of fired up my shoulder a little bit more which fired up the elbow a little bit more so I think it was just kind of a chain reaction at that point and um I had a good year that year I was 10 and 4 and it was a lot of it was smoke and mirrors unfortunately um to to get to 10 and 4 but I was like man if I can just have that same year or anything close to that note too I'm, I'm sitting pretty and um, I knew pretty early on, like just nothing felt easy out of my hand. Like it, it felt like there was a little bit more effort there. And uh, there was talk about sending me down and this, that and the other. And I ended up sticking around, got sent to the bullpen for a little bit. And then, you know, against uh, I think it was the Rockies, I, I felt it again. And I was like, I know this feeling and knew that, you know, it was probably worse um was hoping for the best but that's my I, I knew i needed surgery at that point so and, and got back you know i think the toughest part was the mental part just you don't feel like you we had a bunch of guys um that year on the dl unfortunately in in 02 so it was just kind of a revolving door and you know you couldn't really do anything so you feel kind of useless to to the team and you want to be there in a supportive role but like you don't even have a, a, a locker anymore because there's so many guys. So like we're moved to the training room oh. with stuff in a, a locker. So I'd come in, do my therapy, and then I'd go home, you know, just watch the game on TV almost. So you just feel like you're in the way a little bit. So the mental side of things was was a little bit more tough than the physical side for me. You're a guy who loves traveling. As your career was trickling down, why not play internationally? I think I missed it by like a year. So I I, um, I played in uh, – 
I, I played no three. I got called me up for a couple starts just to see how I was. I felt pain free, but but I didn't have any stamina. And, and during that time frame, uh, to be fair, they had guys like uh, Jake Peavy that was coming up and uh, Dennis Tankersley, Oliver Perez. So they had some guys that were coming up that were their future stars. Mm-hmm. And I was a guy that just got surgery that, you know, who knows, you know, it's probably 31 ish. And so, you know, are they going to put stock in me or, or somebody like that? And so I, I didn't fault them for, for going that way. So I, um, I was a free agent at that time when they took me out the 40 man and, um, was like, you know what, I'm going to go somewhere else. And, and I knew Clint and I, I went and played in Colorado Springs. I was in their AAA affiliate and probably had the worst year of my life. Um, just not an easy place to play. I mean, the highest altitude yeah. country and I lived by myself. So if I sucked, then I got to think about it for four days by myself in my apartment. So just was not a good mental place to be. And uh, I didn't make it any better at certain times. So, um, a couple of my friends went and played in Japan and made nice money and, and a good experience. But, but back then it was like, literally you had to tell them, Hey, I want to play. And then they, they would scout you for a year and then they would sign you the following year. I think I missed that just by like a year. Um, so it would have been neat to do, but, um, it is what it is. I think everything happens for a reason. So you're coaching now young kids, pitching coach. What's the biggest difference now with kids? Because I remember I played high school baseball and two guys in all of Staten Island threw over 90. Both of them got drafted. Now all these kids are throwing 90s. What's the biggest difference now with kids now and kids when you and I played? Sure. I think that back then, like you say, there weren't a lot of guys that threw hard, so you had to know how to pitch. You had to know how to change speed. You had to know how to hit your spots. You had to know how to spin it. You had to know how to pitch backwards. So you had to know how to pitch, hold runners, field your position. Now, I think, and I don't think it's necessarily for the best, everybody is just velocity focused. And, you know, I go to watch games or I watch, you know, baseball tonight and, and balls are right down the middle. And it's like, you, you are not going to last very long. And I think the analytics side of things um, plays a part in that nowadays, but um, you know, hitters, I don't see good two strike approaches pitchers. I don't see good two strikes. I don't see good, you know, working ahead in counts, you know, 60 plus percent of the time strike percentage. I mean, there's certain things that like have been around forever. If you can do those things, whether you throw hard or not, you should succeed at the next level. And I think it's just so um, focused on the power side of things. Um, you know, I see guys that, you know, they'll hit 20 home runs and they hit 230. And I'm like, 230 didn't keep you in the big leagues back then. Like you, you're, you're either up and down um, on that foray bus all the time, or you weren't ever going to make it to the big leagues. Like you had to, you know, at least sit 270. You had to at least, you know, have a little bit of power, drive some runs in, play good defense. And so I think just what the focus on is what what's important nowadays has changed a little bit. But uh, I think back then everybody learned how to pitch. Um, now, you know, the bigger, stronger, faster, I think people have access to a lot more information nowadays and, and they know how to, you know, you know, Tony was at the forefront of like the video technology and breaking down stuff after games and, and on road trips and stuff. And now everybody, you have a cell phone that you can take video and do super slow-mo and send it off to a guru in another state to break down your mechanics. So there's so much more information available to people, but um, I don't think that people know how to pitch. I think, um, 
I run into this here uh, pretty often too. Like somebody has a bad game and they're like, I need to go get a lesson. Not like, no, I just suck today or just won my day or I pitched well. I just don't have any numbers. I was a little unlucky um, or I just faced some good hitters. I mean, so I think um, I love, I mean, some of the best things for me, I still love long toss and I still love taking ground balls. Like I like the, the mundane parts of the game a little bit. Um, I just love taking reps. I, I, and, and I think, you know, in today's like age of travel ball a little bit too, like there's teams that they never practice. Like they just show for games. And so for me, um, you know, it's, it's such an important piece of how you get better. You don't get better in games. You get better in practice. And a lot of people don't really focus on that side of the game anymore. And I, I really feel like that's a, a shame. So. You were the first baseball player from the Frontier League to make it to the pros. Their Saw Young Award is is named after you. Is the hardware at least a nice piece of hardware? The Saw their Saw Young Award. Actually, I've never seen it. Um, I, I I've called the winners uh, of the award a couple times. Like I I you know would reach out to some people in the front office and say, give me their phone number. Let me call them and just wish them luck. And if I can help them out and make some calls for them, let me know. And uh, I, I did not honestly know that I was the first guy to make it to the big leagues. Um, I thought it was one or possibly two other people before me and, and they were close, but, but I beat them to it. And um, there's just, there's so much talent there now. And it's such a, it's such a hard thing to do just, you know, when they decrease the number of minor league affiliates now. And so for you to get in the door, you have to be different. Um, you have to have a, su- a sustained amount of success, a track record a little bit. And so, um, I don't know what it looks like. That's a great question, but, uh, <laughs> you know, the guys that, that win it, um, I, I've met with a couple of them and talked with a couple of them and they just had some silly numbers, some silly numbers. And so, um, you know, I, I appreciate the work that they do and the grind that they put in to, to, you know, keep that dream alive as well. And my first, I think my second spring training in San Diego, um, they had a picture with all the guys from the, independent leagues that had been signed because they they used to sign a lot of guys i mean you could get it for nothing um it wasn't a big investment or anything you didn't have any trades to do or anything so we probably had in that picture maybe 15 guys and it was just neat that some of these guys looked up to me like i was somebody that they knew about you know coming up and you know they you know that made them push on in the journey or whatever so it was it was it was pretty cool so i've had you on for over an hour are you ready to finish up with some quick hit questions sure you come to New York City, you and I are at a bar, you want to impress the whole bar. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you back? Uh, probably Hoffy. Hoffy or Dick Vitale, um, when he was alive, Tony. Um, those are three guys that, that are pretty cool, I, I think at least. So. Yeah, you, you, um, those are, that's a solid answer. How about this one? You're a sport guy. One sporting event in history. You wish you could have witnessed live front row seat to any sporting event in history. What what game? What match? What would it be? I think uh, maybe Cal Ripken Jr.'s uh, record breaking game would have been pretty cool. Oh, that's a um, good answer. Yeah, um, Don Larson's perfect game would have been really cool. Um, I'd love to see Ted Williams play. He was he was one of my guys. Look, uh, growing up would have been pretty cool. Any of. Uh, any of uh, Nolan Ryan's uh, no hitters would have been really cool. I would love to see him pitch live. So that's that's a tough one. Um, I'm a big tennis fan, so would have loved to seen like a Wimbledon with uh, with Rafa and Federer or something. Oh like yeah, that. yeah. So 
You have a lot of memorabilia. You, you name dropped a little bit. How about the coolest piece that you own? Gosh, depends on what you think is cool. I, I have a sweet spot ball by uh, Barry Bonds. He doesn't sweet spot things. So that was kind of a neat one. Um, um, I want to watch for for the NL uh, player of the week. They, they used to give you like a, a watch. So I, I have that. Um, one of my teammates that uh, got killed in a car accident one spring training, I have a bat signed by him. So some of them just mean a little bit more sentimentally. But, uh, you know, anything, I got some of Tony's game use stuff, and, and he was very generous um, when I was up there. So some of his stuff, just because I know he's not signing anything else ever again. And so uh, that, that, that means a lot to me. But last time you asked someone for a photo or an autograph, who was it? Wow. Um, last time, um, and probably Charles Johnson. Like we went to an event, uh, the, the DeSantis was talking and they, they had something where we were, we had won a state championship with Jesuit and there were a bunch of dignitaries and, um, Rick and Keel was there. Oh, wow. I, yeah. Yeah. There. So, uh, I got a chance to reconnect with him. I got a picture with him. Charles Johnson was a dude back when, when we were coming up. So I got a picture with him. Um, Boggs was there. I got a picture with him. So I typically try to leave people alone just because I think uh, a lot of times people don't go about it the right way, asking for a picture or an autograph. I mean, I've, I've met some cool people, and, and it was the first thing in my mind to, like, get a picture or get an autograph. Like, I ran into Michael Jordan uh, in Orlando at a hotel and talked to him for, like, 20 minutes with him and his boys. And didn't think about getting a picture or, uh, you know, a, an autograph or whatever, but it's how it goes sometimes. It's all good. Last two favorite show to binge watch. It's one thirty in the morning. You're downstairs in the man cage by yourself, man cave by yourself. What show are you binge watching? I think I could throw on breaking bad mm -hmm. or Sopranos or any kind of, uh, Seinfeld, um, office. I've watched the office, even though I'm a bad parent for doing this, but, uh, we've, we've watched office from start to finish with my two little boys probably twice through the entire season. So, um, they're big Dwight Schrute fans nowadays. So Root beats farms. How about this one stadium you wish you could have played in? Is there any ones you didn't play in that you wish you could have Yankee stadium? For sure. Yeah. I've been there. I've been to the new one as a fan um, right before I had, to, uh, when I had Tommy John, we were getting ready to go on a, uh, on an interleague um, road trip. And it was going to be at New York at Tampa Bay on a weekend when I could have seen everybody that I had ever known. Back oh. in, and then we were going to have like Boston at home and uh, I had to miss all that because I had surgery, so I didn't travel. So, uh, but yeah, Yankee Stadium would have been just the the ultimate. And they they spring train here in uh, in Tampa. So, like when I owned my edible arrangements franchise, I got to know Mr. Steinbrenner a little bit. Um, he used to order from us a lot, and uh, their family and some of the front office um, staff I know here in town, and just just quality people, quality people. So, bro, this was an absolute blast. I hope you had fun. Uh, dude, this this was a blast, man. Happy Thanksgiving. Let's keep in touch for real, right? Sounds good, man. Appreciate Talk. it. Thank you so much, man. I'll talk soon. You sounds good. Bye bye.